Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome. Welcome to the show today. I'm Carol Bossert. Thank you for tuning in. Um, As uh, my uh, constant and um, loyal listeners know, I have been quite interested in historic homes, small museums, and have done a, a couple of shows on that. I've, I've uh, uh, interviewed Frank Vagnoni um, back in March when he was uh, preparing for his uh, launch of his book, The Anarchist Guide to Historic Houses. And I also did an, a great show that I would recommend you download if you missed it on May 22nd um, with Heather Metzler, uh, Carol Ward of the Morris uh, Jumel House, and Jennifer Walden of the Louis Armstrong uh, House Museum uh, for just some additional background about how fabulous these little gems can be. And so I was interested today and I'm uh, fascinated uh, to see where our conversation goes. I uh, well, uh, Bill Hosley is um, a passionate champion of small museums. Uh, he will share with us his uh, educational and career background, which is uh, just as interesting. Uh, but currently, he is also uh, managing a Facebook uh, page called uh, Housing Our History, so that I stole the title. Uh, from that Facebook page for our discussion today. And I uh, am just, this is going to be a great show. So uh, I'm glad you're all there. Bill, welcome to the show today. Hey, Carol. Great to be with you this morning. Great, great. Bill, I, uh, as you know, I always ask my guests to share their biography and career trajectory in their own words. I think it helps all of our listeners sort of get a sense of who you are and ground our discussions. So if you would be so kind to sort of open our show by answering that question today. Yeah, sure. Great, great to get introduced. I, uh, I came into this during the bicentennial era in the 70s, so that kind of dates me. But at that time, historic preservation and interest in Americana and antiques and the whole sense of place movement were really at a fever pitch. I mean, if you go back to the 60s, you know, Sotheby's and Christie's didn't exist. You know, the American wing at the Metropolitan hadn't been dusted off in 40 years. I mean, there was you know, there wasn't the vibrancy that, that really kicked into gear in the 1970s. And I started out doing research and programs at a magnificent local historical society in the town where I went to college. It's a place called the Sheldon Museum in Middlebury, Vermont. And amazingly, it was founded in the 1880s. So it's a 130-year-old museum that, uh, you know, for a, a little town, it's... it's uh, kind of like their own private Smithsonian. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable stuff. So I got the immersion in that. And then I spent uh, the summer of 1976 as a research fellow 
at historic Deerfield uh, in the Connecticut Valley and then wound up uh, doing graduate work at the Winotour Museum and then worked as a curator uh, of Americana and Art Museum in Connecticut, uh, followed by directorships at uh, uh, one organization that operated a chain of house museums. And then I was the director of the New Haven Museum and Historical Society, one of the oldest historical organizations in Connecticut. So that's that's how I got into all of this. And I, you know, we do a, my wife and I do a, our inveterate road trippers. And gosh, probably over the past forty years, I've been to a thousand museums. So I, I love poking around and exploring. And I think, it, as you mentioned at the outset, it's a lot of those little places that sometimes offer the the biggest surprises and discoveries. Yes, yes. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. You certainly uh, have quite a, uh, a resume and, and have been involved in these uh, variety of museums. Uh, and I, you also uh, continue to do uh, some consulting for museums as well, correct? Yes, yeah. I have my consulting business, Terra Firma Northeast. Uh, we do uh, strategic planning and marketing and uh, communications for museums and also municipalities trying to help places that have collections of interesting things tell their story and get the word out. Because again, in terms of travel, you know, you, you think of Colonial Williamsburg and Charleston, South Carolina and Philadelphia. There are a lot of great American heritage destinations that everybody knows, but there are hundreds that kind of fly under the radar that are just as interesting. So I like to help those places tell their stories. That's great. That's great. Well, I wanted to get that plug in uh, for you. Um, so I noticed uh, in the materials that you sent and when we've had our, our uh, getting acquainted conversations, you really uh, lecture a lot about the history of historic house museums. And, and one of the things that uh, you've, you've talked about is the relationship between these uh, historic house museums and the progressive women's movement and then the preservation movement. And so I'm wondering if you could share some insights about that for us. Yeah, that's great. great. This year, 2016, is um, uh, 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 the 100th anniversary of the founding of the National Park Service and the 50th anniversary of the National uh, the Historic Preservation Act of 1966. So we're going to be hearing a lot about uh, these legacy achievements and and the uh, 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 you know uh, the history of history, if you will, the history of the pub- work of public history that, uh, that that museums are so involved in. And you know, I I got into this uh, real my interest in the history of this profession, if you will, and and of museums is because so many of these early founders, you know, the people that founded the American wing, the people that, the, the women that founded Mount Vernon, um, these are fascinating stories. A lot of your founders in any kind of business are, are kind of visionaries. And it's always interesting to me to see what, think what were these people saying and doing? How did they get things started and what was, what drove them? So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, almost anywhere you look in the museum business and particularly with house museums and historical organizations, you go back to those origin stories, those founding stories, and you're going to find, frankly, women starting these things uh, 80% of the time. And, and, and there are some, you know, and, and particularly in the field of his, uh, historic preservation, 
and public history. I, I guess I would say that uh, with, without the, the drive and passion and vision of these progressive era women, uh, you, you wouldn't have the preservation movement in America. They did amazing things. And some of that were individuals. And in other cases, it was groups of women working through what they call the lineage societies, organizations like the Daughters of the American Revolution and the Colonial Dames. And, you know, these are, these are organizations that started in the 1890s. And it's kind of amazing to me that at the time women got the vote in 1920, the DAR uh, was one of the largest organized voting blocks, if you will. In other words, it was a, an organization with 100,000 active members. And that's, that was almost immediate political influence that they had. And again, they just did great things. So I think, uh, you know, women have been the, the, the stewards and caretakers of a lot of this history. And uh, I not only honor that legacy, I think there's a lot we can learn from it. That is very interesting, and and uh, and I never had uh, really thought of, frankly, thought about that before. Connected the dots that, in fact, many of uh, uh, children's museums, in particular, but other sites are off are uh, very often started by women of the junior league, and so perhaps that's continuing that uh, that uh, historical trajectory. I think that's interesting. Um, no, and it's, it's interesting. There's a, a, a wonderful book by this uh, Kathleen McCarthy uh, about women's culture, and it's this book about women who started actually started art museums uh, like like the Whitney, and the most famous is Isabella Stewart Gardner in Boston. And there's just a great line in there because she was. She was one of these sort of take-no-prisoners, my-way-or-the-highway type. She was a real visionary. And there was a moment, and she describes in the book, where the, uh, I don't know whether it's, uh, you, you know, the, 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 the uh, building manager or somebody, this bureaucracy in Boston, there were people that were giving her a hard time about this building project she was doing. And, and her response was, if this is going to be done, it's going to be my, don't be done my way and not your way. And I thought, boy, that's power. Well, it's something, isn't it? Um, uh, yeah. so, um, so could you just, uh, I, I, we have so many other things to talk about. I don't want to derail us too much, but what, say, what was the motivation uh, for these these uh, these groups to preserve uh, some of these facilities, and I guess what I'm even more interested in is what they chose to preserve. Yeah, well, I think initially, uh, you, again, you go back to the the, the first golden age, sort of the uh, right around World War One, and uh, you know this has been much written about. I mean, there was, in fact, it's you know it's interesting as we're dealing in an election cycle now where immigration and the politics of American inclusion are complicated, uh, that this is what was happening during World War One, and that there was a sense that um, this the country was changing and that the ethnic composition of the country was changing. I mean, if you go back prior to the Civil War, uh, let's just, you, you know, there obviously was slavery, but there was, um, you know, the the, the ethnic composition of the country wasn't all that diverse prior to the Civil War. You had Germans, Dutch, English, a very few Irish. You know, that's 
pretty much what it was, but it exploded after World War One and with industrialization. So I think to some degree that the women and the organizations that were creating these sites were interested in preserving, uh, creating places where people could connect with the the, the the history, the colonial past, and, and you know it was what they called Americanization. This idea that that there are certain uh, uh, things that are useful to know in terms of the whole melting pot theory, which some people feel has been discredited. But the idea that we are all in this together, that this is you know one nation, uh, and that we have certain you know kind of cultural values that are inherently American, and that's what they believed. And so these sites were, to some degree, created to foster uh, a, a connection to those American stories. Interesting. Uh, it reminds me, um, last summer I had uh, Teresa Bergman on the, uh, on the show uh, talking about her book, Exhibiting Patriotism, and uh, sharing some, uh, a fascinating story about the uh, women who uh, created and preserved the Alamo. And uh, again, that, yeah, that would be... Was a, right. That's great. That's a great... Uh, that was, yeah, that's a famous... We, uh, I forget what they were called, the descendants of the founders of Texas or something, but, but it, it, uh, the Alamo was a, another one of the women's groups. Uh, great. And so we, we do, I guess, uh, it, for better or for worse, we, we are uh, the beneficiaries of their, their interests. It sounds to me as if in some ways, well, I mean, we know what they preserved. They preserved um, uh, the houses and homes of mostly the rich and famous. Yeah, well, uh, famous is probably the wrong word. But yeah, you know, I mean, look, one one of the things I love, if you go to Old Sturbridge Village a few years ago, they reconstructed what they call the small house, and they did all this research. And when you see this thing, the argument that they make is that this basically two-room house is how most people lived. I mean, in other words, they, they you know, most of the modest housing from the colonial and early national period didn't survive. So because it was, you know, it wasn't expensive. It wasn't seen as worthy of preservation. Uh, as people got more affluent, they may have added on things. And so, um, you know, yeah, the the big grandiose. You look at a place like Cliveden, you know, outside of Charleston. It's one of the architectural tour de force of, you know, an American architecture. That you know, that was a McMansion of its era. And that's you know, those are the kind of things that were saved. So yes, I mean, there is a disproportionate. A preservation of the things that belong to people who were better off. Yes, and I and and clearly and 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 having done some of the educational interpretation for some of these uh, uh, homes as well, it does provide some challenges in making connections to the present because ninety nine percent of us do not live that way and don't know what well, all those forks are for. Yeah, well, there, there you go. I always think you go to Newport. I mean, that's a whole nother scale, and it's to me a little beyond. But the Newport mansions uh, are sort of a Downton Abbey thing, you know, where you, you know it's sort of unimaginable for for most Americans. I agree. But but a lot of your house museums, you know, they're they're not all big mansions. They're not all Drayton Hall. They're certainly not all Newport, and there are actually many of them that that while they weren't poor people 
they they do reflect the lives of what one might call the kind of comfortable middle class. And I think that's pretty relatable. Interesting. Yes. Well, I tell you what, I think let us break right now. And when we come back, I want to continue this little bit of grounding us in history. Uh, You mentioned the decorative arts. And so I want to make that relationship. But uh, I don't want to interrupt that train of thought. So we're going to break right now. And when we come back, uh, more with Bill uh, and this fascinating sort of history of historic, uh, uh, historic homes. So please stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Are you ready for an Anything Goes hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I am here today with Bill Hosley, and we have been, we're talking about 
uh, historic houses, and uh, we've uh, Bill reminded us that this is a very uh, interesting year and in that it is the 100th anniversary of the uh, National Park Service, uh, which was created to preserve uh, uh, first outdoor sites like uh, Yellowstone and uh, some of the, our other greater uh, outdoor national parks, but of course then also some of our more uh, interesting historic properties, as well as the 50th anniversary of the uh, uh, Preserv National Preservation Act, and so it is fitting that we are looking back a little bit uh, into the history of these properties. And uh, Bill, be uh, one of the things you mentioned in your introduction uh, uh, alluded to because it was at a period of time that you were actually beginning your career was the push for uh, decorative arts, Ameri Americana, if you will, uh, in the uh, 1960s through about the 1980s. How, how did this affect the interpretation of historic houses? Well, it's, it's, Carol, it's extraordinary. Uh, interest in antiques and decorative arts went mainstream, interestingly, after Jackie Kennedy famously turned the White House into a house museum. And, uh, and she engaged curators and embarked on, on a restoration and made antiques and decorative arts fashionable. She didn't do that all by herself, but it was a very high-profile uh, and a year or so ago, we were at the uh, Kennedy uh, Museum in Dorch outside of Boston, the uh, Kennedy Memorial Museum, and they had a whole section about the redecorating of the White House and how extraordinarily prominent uh, Mrs. Kennedy was. And that was in, you know, early 1960s. And uh, for the next 30 years, decorative arts, this interest in, you know, uh, ceramics and silver and furniture history and uh, upholstery and floor coverings and wallpaper, all that, what we think of as decorative arts, uh, uh, dominated how museums, even small ones, interpreted and presented their collections. It, it, uh, it led to an explosion of public interest. And again, at the same time, the auction houses were ramping up. The antiques market was heating up. Um, and it uh, before that, you know, before the 1960s, there were fewer house museums, and with the exception of places like Colonial Williamsburg and Old Sturbridge Village, interpretation, you know, was often more corny than sophisticated. Uh, serious material culture scholarship ramped up in the 60s through 80s as well, so that uh, there was, you know, a real analytical scholarly basis to some of the, these, these state-of-the-art restorations. Uh, but uh, today it's different. I mean, it's a wide, wide open territory, very diverse, variable and interesting. Uh, this, to me, is the most exciting time for this work ever. So the decorative arts model uh, still exists, and there are many house museums that, that sh sh present themselves in that way. And it's, when it's done well, it's, it's breathtaking. But there are a lot of different ways, and as you, you mentioned, Frank Bagnoni and uh, his his work. There's so many uh, experimental approaches that that are worth trying, and that mix it up a little bit and 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 show how these houses can really be a platform for teaching and engagement uh, from a wide range of uh, viewpoints. That is, uh, you know, I'm I'm really glad. I 
that you shared that, Bill. I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone uh, express that so succinctly uh, as to, no, it, uh, that, you know, Jackie Kennedy uh, was quite a, uh, uh, created quite an impression in this, in, uh, in the 1960s. Of course, I, I, I'm, remember her very, very well, uh, as I was a child, but, uh, that, that, you know, the hairdo and the hats and, and the gloves and, and it, and it just is one more example. And it is very interesting to me that, um, because I'm an, I, I love antiques and I love messing around in old antique stores and seeing what I can find. And, but it does seem that there is a, a very uh, perceivable shift in what we value today. And we're not necessarily value, valuing or wanting to own all that silver and all that china. Uh, and so it seems as if the you know the market for antiques seems to be going in a different direction, and it seems as if there's a to me there you're saying there's a parallel in now how that we're moving beyond just uh, interpreting historic homes by the you know what the wallpaper looked like and who uh, who designed the uh, stained glass windows. Well, and again, I think to me the most compelling interpretation comes from individuals who uh, are grounded in, in a, a, a wide array of, of interpretive techniques, who know a lot and can come at the thing from multiple vantage points. So by, by all means, if there's, some, if there's a story behind the wallpaper that is riveting, that people will, will love to learn about, tell it. Don't don't suppress that. I mean, there's de- decorative arts is incredibly exciting stuff in the hands of good interpreters. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that to some extent uh, that movement was driven by, you know, it appealed to collectors. And who are collectors? Collectors are like you know two percent of the one po- percent of the population. I mean, in terms of the kind of people that could buy these things. So I think maybe it wasn't as relatable uh, for everybody. And I think there may have been at times. Be an assumption that uh, because this was exciting to uh, uh, you know people with money and people that collected things and to the auction houses and dealers that everybody should care and that, you know everybody does not care so I you know we're trying new things uh, but those old things also work when they're done well. Very interesting. Well, uh, that I think that gives us a really good grounding now for you to uh, share some of your case studies. Uh, you have many. Well, yeah, we you know we travel a lot. I, I I don't keep an exact number, but I would say in a typical year, uh, we my wife and I probably visit forty museums, um, you know, a lot of your house museums are seasonal, you know, so they're kind of open May to October. And I always look at it. It's like the, you know, it's like in the winter, you got the ski season and in, and in the summer, you got the whole house season. And, uh, you know, it's great to go out and, 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 and sort of, you know, we'll take a map sometimes and say, all right, where haven't we been? And, uh, uh, and we'll find one or two places that we haven't seen, and then we'll look around and see what else is in that area. Let's make a whole day of it. 
And there, there, there are days when we will pick off actually four, probably the record. I think we might have done five on in one day once, but but four or five house museums in a day. And it's exciting because, you know, every place is interesting. So, you know, and being here in New England, you've got a lot of density. New York, New England, Pennsylvania, there's a ton of this stuff. You know, you go to Philadelphia, you couldn't see everything there is to see in Philadelphia if you had a whole week. You couldn't do it. So there's a lot of content out there. And we like poking around, but not just in the Northeast. I've uh, been in Iowa and Texas and California and Florida uh, certainly the South is incredible uh, in terms of the history that's there. And I you know, just love doing this. So there, there are many, many places that, um, uh, you know, if I were to write a book on my hundred favorite, favorite uh, house, you know, historic sites in America, I guess that 60 of them would be places that people have hardly even heard of. There's so many great things that are, that, as I put it, fly a little bit under the radar. Well, can you share with us a couple well, of your examples? Sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, you know, we were uh, well again right here in in, in Connecticut, my uh, uh, right near where I live, the Windsor Historical Society, which was founded in the 1920s, um, is a, a typical kind of community-based historical society, and almost every town in Connecticut and Massachusetts and there, you know, they say there are thousands of these community-based historical societies, and uh, most of your house museums are actually owned and operated by his local historical societies. So they, these organizations tend to be very engaged with their communities, and they are, this, you know, they, they, they tell the stories of the communities. And the Windsor Historical Society recently uh, restored and reinterpreted a, their house museum. They had this house museum that was called the Filer House, and it was said to have been built in 1647 or something. It was said to be the oldest house in Connecticut or one of the oldest houses in Connecticut. And they they finally did some serious research and figured out that the date was wrong and that the Filers never lived there. I mean, kind of embarrassing. But they transformed this house from a kind of C-minus, not-so-great, you know, it wasn't architecturally magnificent and it didn't have the most riveting story, but they turned it in to one of the most interesting house museums I have ever seen. And it is uh, talk about uh, 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 thinking outside the box. It's uh, entirely furnished with reproduction. So you can touch everything. The drawers open. The drawers are filled with textiles that all are relevant to the specific stories of the specific people who live there, and they have done these uh, characters from the past where they have these dramatizations where uh, Captain Howard and his wife, you meet them and you interact with them, and it's, it's just, you know, you can sit in the chairs, open the drawers, flop down on the bed, handle the textiles, um, and at, at scheduled performances, interact with characters from the past who lived there in 1810. The same historical society has school kids exploring their town's environment and creating place-based art projects. They do forums and panel discussions on timely topics of uh, contemporary concern. Uh, and uh, they do a wide array of adult public programs, including a recent winter workshop on popular drinks in colonial America, kind of a colonial pub crawl. So it's all good stuff. And again, 
that's just an example of a dynamic organization that is involved in uh, that has a great showed to experience, but also is doing all kinds of programming that connect the community and make their historical society kind of a vibrant community center. And that, that to me is the, the movement that I see that makes me so excited. Uh, a little further up, up the Connecticut River, historic Northampton in uh, 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 academic town, home of uh, Smith College and Mount Holyoke and uh, Amherst College. Uh, Northampton's an interesting place, and the historical society has been just hitting the ball out of the ballpark with one extraordinary program after the next. And it's, you know, you'll go to these programs, and there'll be 120 people in the audience. I mean, it's really very exciting. So I think that that we live in a time when uh, there's so much, you, you know, frankly, kind of uh, the whole commercial sphere is dominated by national change stores where ugliness and junk architecture is like the sprawling virus. Uh, and I think that how historical societies are kind of a, an antidote. Uh, uh, There's something that still grounds us in place, past, and community. And, uh, and they are really, uh, I think, having a, uh, uh, an exciting era of uh, kind of a renaissance because of that. That's a great example, Bill. And I uh, now I want to go. I want to go visit. Um, it, it does sound as as well. It, it sounds as if they're doing some uh, things that that other institutions, perhaps larger institutions, don't feel that they can do. I'm reminded of my colleague Linda Norris uh, always saying that the the great thing about small museums is that they they can move swiftly and they can mm-hmm. yep. uh, they can. Uh, uh, risk some things. I mean, who would have thought uh, letting people open the drawers or touch some of the furniture or take those silken row uh, 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 tie things that uh, always go across the doors and don't let you enter them and, and all of the sort of barriers that so many of us uh, are saddened by uh, because no, people... I mean, Small museums really are incubators of innovation. I mean, it's not to say that all of them do, and many of them don't, but some of the absolute most exciting breakthroughs come from people taking the initiative uh, and not having to maneuver around bureaucratic channels to get to yes on a new idea. That's great. Can you? We have a little bit time, a little bit of time before our next break. So, would you share another uh, example with us? Yeah, I was uh, just looking at thinking about a, a house museum in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, called Bruce Moore, and it's you know it was a, it's a big mansion, so it's not a humble small house, but it is. Uh, you know, and they have a standard tour that explores over a century of Cedar Rapids history. But, uh, you know, I was looking at their web. I've actually never been there. I've been to Ohio, Iowa, and I've been to other house museums in Iowa. But I look at the things that they are doing, and they have educational opportunities for school groups of all ages. Their tours are led by the experienced guides, and they have all these thematic tours they do on uh the hired help uh, working on a country estate, seasonal landscape hikes, historic landscape tours, uh, gardens, 
uh, nooks and crannies, the kind of back rooms and hidden spaces and attics that sometimes get neglected. And you, you, you know, you just you look at the program schedule on their website. This is a place called Bruce Moore in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and it just radiates innovation. It, very exciting to look at. Um, and uh, you know, another another place, um, the Wick House in Philadelphia, uh, as a historic house. Germantown. Do you know the Germantown section of Philadelphia at all? Uh, not well. Yeah, well, it's you know it's part of Philadelphia, but it's uh, you know it's it's uh, you know it's it's a very mixed neighborhood economically. There's some challenges, and yet this was an extraordinarily important part of the history of Philadelphia. You know, you get millions of people every year going to Independence Hall, and you know, for a quick shuttle, they could be up in Germantown where there are four extraordinary house museums that are so authentic and wonderful. And WIC, spelled W-Y-C-K, Historic House and Garden, is one of those. And uh, they have, it's a working farm, and they do have a weekly farmer's market and festivals that they do that bring a 1,000 people to the property to learn about beekeeping and other things. Uh, The guests learn how to make mead. There is so much uh, going, going on there. And, um, you know, it's, uh, just again, another, another example, even in a, uh, distressed neighborhood that is not necessarily an A-list destination. This is a place that's making it work and doing really outside the box, innovative stuff. Well, that's great. Uh, Thank you for sharing those examples. I know you have many, many more, and we may get to a couple after the break, but we are going to take another short break. And when we come back, uh, more with Bill and some of his insights about historic homes and and smaller museums and and the special role that they play. Before we go to break, I want to remind everyone, I love hearing from uh, my listeners. I particularly love it when you recommend topics or guests that you feel should be on the show. So continue to contact me at carol.bossard at verizon.net or on Twitter at at MuseWrite. The conversations that uh, I have been able to have because of the platform of the show have just been so gratifying, and I'm learning so so much from all of you that uh, please let's continue those conversations. So with that, we will be back in a moment. Uh, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, 
boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossard, and I'm here with Bill Hosley. Uh, and we are just getting more and more inspired about some of the interesting things that historic houses are doing, particularly those small ones. As Bill says, they fly under the radar. They can do interesting things. Uh, and if it doesn't work, nobody knows. They don't care. And they'll learn and do something else. But more importantly, they are connecting to their immediate communities. And during the break, Bill and I were talking a little bit more. And uh, Bill, I want you to share uh, what can people find on the Housing Our History Facebook page that you've created? Well, Carol, I started that in 2009. And at this point, there may may be uh, a thousand case studies there. And there uh, every you know, anytime I visit a museum, and it's a place where I, for me, it's kind of a, a, like a diary of my travels, where I visit a place and I will take photographs and and share with people what I've seen and 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 provide a little bit of uh, analysis. But there are uh, wonderful photographs, thousands of photographs, some videos uh, uh, that will show guides and interpreters doing amazing live action stuff. And uh, you know, it's. I think somebody could scroll through the Housing Our History Facebook site and kind of plan their summer travel itinerary around it because there are literally hundreds of museums uh, showcased there that you wouldn't have ever been to and or maybe even heard of. I mean, I certainly look at big things, but there are many, many small museums that are extraordinary. Well, and I would think, too, that it is uh, one uh, uh, additional resource for other historic houses and uh, small museums, perhaps looking for uh, a new idea or some creative input. Uh, And I've noticed on the site as well is that it does have a very robust uh, discussion on many topics related to historic houses. So it sounds as it looks to me as if you are... Are uh, a wonderful site for creating community uh, with of historic house managers and volunteers. And because let's face it, uh, when you work for one of these smaller organizations, it can be, I would imagine, very isolating. Absolutely, and I think the thing that I'm proudest of is the, the conversations. And you know, by the way, anybody can post on this site if somebody has likes what they see and wants to add to the conversation 
anybody can start a thread. But what I love is when I'll post something, sometimes there are things that are controversial or I'll ask a question or I'll raise an issue. And then people start weighing in. And, and I mean, to me, these are like seminars. You know, you have these discussion groups that are in many ways grappling with and solving problems uh, as effectively as you would in a museum studies course. Interesting. And so, uh, so anyone can find it on Facebook, correct? Just, yeah, just, uh, yeah, just housing, housing our history. Housing history. Yeah. Um, great. Well, you know, I, as I said, as I was preparing to, uh, to do this interview with you today and after we've talked, I too have been, uh, checking out the site a little more and there is a new, uh, project that sort of caught my eye. I hope I'd like you to share a little bit more. It's called, uh, hashtag historic house crush. What's that all yeah. about? Oh man, that's so great. Uh, Salem, Massachusetts is one of those you know, it's up there really with Charleston, South Carolina. It's just such an A-list destination. And they put a lot of effort. The Peabody Essex Museum is pretty famous, and they've invested millions of dollars in improvements over the past 20 years. But uh, Salem, to me, is also a place of just incredible architecture. You know, it's just a great walking city. There's so much to see. And there are, I don't know, maybe there are half a dozen house museums and in Salem, and the Peabody Essex owns a couple of them. They have this ropes mansion that they've recently uh, uh, put some new, renewed uh, uh, effort into. And they came up with this concept of the historic house crush, which is uh, going, how can I put this? Until fairly recently, within museums, you'd have this, you know, no pictures, no touching, behave. You know, there was kind of this slightly oppressive, a funereal uh, atmosphere to it, but that's changing very, very rapidly. I find museums now sometimes urge their patrons to take pictures. We realize we live in this selfie culture where young people in particular, but you know, I also do this. We now communicate in photographs. It's the darndest thing. People talk to each other through pictures. And so what the historic house crush is, is an attempt to crowdsource creativity around photography and house museums. Now, I'm looking at this thing and some of the examples. And again, you can go on Twitter and just look at historic house crush with a hashtag, and you'll see some of the photography that's already been posted there. And they will have these sort of uh, events where people will descend on the house and, 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 and the whole point is, 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 is photography and, and sharing and, and sharing pictures. But I look at some of these pictures and I had this uh, almost, it, it almost immediately triggered me an idea that what a wonderful exhibition or book it would make uh, to crowdsource just amazing photographs of historic house interiors and exteriors. Because I've taken a lot, but a lot of people have. And, you know, it, how an artist or a photographer renders, how people see these things becomes very personal and something that people really care about. So, and, and I think that the photography sometimes shows these things in a really flattering light. So it's just a win-win as far as I can tell. 
That's a that's a wonderful uh, wonderful thing, and I I think perhaps I'll start posting some of my uh, photos as well. Uh, I you know I have them on my Instagram account, but I'm happy to uh, to share them, particularly some things that I took in New Orleans last year. Uh, that oh, sounds yeah. like a wonderful uh, again a wonderful way of merging the past with the present and creating uh, a community that uh, may be doing things. Uh, in a contemporary way, but they really are. It's I loved what the phrase you said before: this sense of place, past, and community. Yeah, place, past, and community. It's uh, those are the things that we're we're kind of losing, and I think people have a yearning. Uh, you know, the mo- after family, the most fundamental level of human connectivity is 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 their town or their immediate environment, and people you know who are sometimes disgusted with. Uh, the political uh, life at the national, even the state level, tend to still believe in and care about their localities. So I think that, uh, you know, to me, local is the level that matters most. I say that about history. I say that about art. I'm, I'm a real evangelist for all things local. Well, I, I, I think that that is uh, an extremely important message, and you certainly have uh, done a great job today in uh, building that case for some of the prog- uh, for for museums or smaller museums that are doing some innovative things. And as I said, uh, I was able to talk with uh, also some wonderful directors, the uh, Morris Jumile House in New York and also the Louis Armstrong Museum are also examples of doing some really fabulous and important things for their community. But, you know, Bill, it, it, it leaves me to still wonder, and, you know, so perhaps you can ponder with me a little bit on this. Why, why do we, why do these historic houses or small museums uh, still, they seem so misunderstood? Yeah, I guess I would say they're more overlooked than misunderstood. Let's face it, in addition to the local, anything small is really at a disadvantage you know and you look at this in the history of retail when you and i were kids you know most commercial you'd go to the mall and most of the businesses were locally owned it's all these national even global chains i mean you know it's it's tough preserving the sustainability of small things but uh so i think they're a bit overlooked but if you want to talk about the sprawling literature on the subject uh, of, of, you know, and house museums, uh, much of it is pessimistic or disparaging. And, uh, in, and, you know, that really, I hate to say, but it was really a direct outgrowth of the National Trust for Historic Preservation when in 2002 they asked the question, raised the issue, are there too many house museums? And it sparked anxiety, which has given birth to a cottage industry of problem solvers and consultants, of which, you know, I am one, but I don't misunderstand house museums. I love them. I don't, I know them intimately, and God help me, I, again, I'm sure I've visited 600 or more. It's a mixed bag. Some are great, many are awesome, and some of those do not have the benefit of great wealth. The best thrive, thrive on volunteerism, conviction, and imagination. So it's, you know, we, we, to me, it's in part a, a marketing problem. And, uh, 
But, uh, you know, I think what we're doing right now is fostering a little more understanding. And I think actually the literature, I mean, this is to me the most, one of the most vibrant sectors of the museum industry because there's all this discussion going on about house museums that was not happening 10 years ago. Interesting, interesting. So, so for instance, you are called in by a, you know, a house museum X, and let's say they, you know, they aren't as enlightened or as creative or as, you know, risk-taking as some of these other sites have been. What kind of advice do you give them? Well, I'm thinking of making up a bumper sticker. I, I, I reduced it to three words. Don't be boring. <laughs> Don't be boring. And it, that, it, it's easier said than done. But I think if you take that as your starting point, don't be boring. And really internalize it. It's amazing what can be accomplished. And, you know, I think a lot of times uh, messaging. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I mean, you're in the communication business. I'm in the communication business to some degree. I think everybody needs to be in the communication business. And uh, I hate to use the word marketing, but organizations, you know, they need to have uh, social connectivity through social media. They need to have uh, a, a, a public image and burnishing that, is, you know, it takes some creativity, but that's usually, you know, there, there are things you can do in terms of the, the visitor experience and how you present and interpret these things. But, you know, the, the key to connectivity is don't be boring, do a lot of creative public programming and, and, and be open, be open and accessible. And I think if, if organizations do that, the, the public support will follow. Well, I think that those are, that's a great bumper sticker. Uh, uh, for for a whole lot of for a whole lot of us, uh, but it does uh, it 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 does shift the conversation from what can uh, my museum do for you to what can we do together? Uh, it being grounded yeah. in our grounding uh, museums in their community and breaking down those barriers. I think uh, I, that is a theme that I hear again and again on this show. Bill, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today, uh, sharing these very uplifting uh, examples. I, I do agree with you that somehow, even within our field, uh, while we need to be self-critical, sometimes perhaps we get a little too critical. Uh, in some of our our sister organizations, and that doesn't help either. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, Car Carol, it's been great fun. Thanks so much. And uh, we will be back next week with, uh, with another show, uh, some great guests lined up for this uh, cold winter. And I hope uh, that, again, uh, contact me uh, for sharing your ideas about how museums can improve and also perhaps if there's anything I can do for you in interpretive planning and community development, I would be thrilled to do that as well. So thank you again for listening. Uh, it is so humbling to know that so many people around the world tune in every week. So again, thank you very much. See you next week. Uh, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. 
Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.